China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, a Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Jen Pan, Assistant Professor in the Department of Communication at Stanford University. Today we'll be discussing her new book, Welfare for Autocrats, How Social Assistance in China Cares for Its Rulers, which was just published by Oxford University Press. Jen, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So I wanted to start out with asking you to summarize the book's main findings for those who haven't had a chance to read the book. What in a nub is Welfare for Autocrats about and what is it arguing? The book is really oriented around this question of what are the costs of the Chinese regime's obsession with quelling dissent in the name of imposing political order or what China calls stability. So in this book, I'm looking at how China has reshaped its major social assistance program, Dibao, or Zuidishenghuobaozhang, around this preoccupation of stability and how it's turned this social assistance program into, in part, a tool of surveillance and repression. When you were doing your PhD at Harvard, you had been studying, among many other things, including ideology, but you'd also been doing some really path-breaking work with Gary King and Molly Roberts on censorship. I wanted to know, how did you move from that focus and a focus on work you're doing on ideology on this issue of how social policy is used for stability maintenance? Yeah, so even though this book is coming out way many years later after my work, Work on censorship, I actually went into grad school with an interest in this work, in social policy, social welfare. That's actually the primary reason why I went to grad school, because I wanted to get a deeper understanding of how governments interacted with society through these programs and to do so using cutting edge methodologies. When the censorship work came out, I almost moved away from this work, but I went back to it because fundamentally I really care about how people are able to live their lives, why is it that some people have more than others, and what's the role that government programs play in that dynamic. And did you, when you first started at least doing some initial research on this, did you know or was there already an established literature on how authoritarian political systems utilize social welfare policy for stability maintenance or other political ends? A little bit. There is a little bit of research on the intersection of authoritarian rule and welfare to prop up authoritarian rule. But almost all of the work in that area is, is really about the design of social policies in order to enforce order. And what I found with Dibao is that this is a policy that has evolved over time. When I set out to study Dibao, I actually wasn't aware of many of the political implications of the program that I found out. I went into studying this program with a kind of pure interest in you know, who gets benefits, who doesn't get benefits, is there inequality and in provision of benefits, things that really had nothing to do with surveillance or repression or many of the things that I ended up learning about. I wanted to set some groundwork before we dig into the Dibao program. There's a great discussion in the beginning of your book on this idea of political order, which comes from Samuel Huntington, or at least was made some pioneer pioneering work by Huntington. But you, and you say this is synonymous or very similar to the concept of political stability, which is, of course, within the context of the CCP, is a phrase that we just use a lot and have used a lot. Indeed, I think we think this is a sort of a core paradigm of party rule. An argument you make, though, is that Although we've used that same set phrase of political stability for a decade, a decade and a half, that actually underneath the surface, there have been some important, if subtle, shifts 
and how the party is thinking about political stability. So I wonder if you could just unpack that a bit. What have been these shifts in Beijing's thinking on political stability? What have been those shifts in light of some key historic moments that you talk about, which have propelled forward some of these changes? And I think as a final question, how are these shifts in thinking manifesting in on the ground realities? So when I first got into this, I assumed that stability has been the same to China since throughout the reform period. And there's a really famous quote from Deng Xiaoping, which he said to President George H.W. Bush in 1989, which is, to China's problems, the overwhelming priority is stability. Without a stable environment, nothing can be achieved and what has been achieved will be lost. And so that seems very similar to what we think of China today. But when you look at documents from the early 1990s, instability is seen as a necessary consequence of economic reform and privatization. And creation of systems like a social security system, social assistance programs, was seen as a way of alleviating the pain of economic reform. But today, when the Chinese regime talks about stability, it is conflating economic growth, social stability, and regime durability. Instead of the thinking being, when we have economic reforms, there will be instability, so we need to create systems to try to alleviate economic pain. Instead, it's the only way we can obtain stability is through economic growth and development. That's a completely different type of causal argument and thinking, yet we've today tended to kind of conflate these ideas. It struck me that Deng Xiaoping quote is stability is a means to some other important end, correct? That's right. That's right. Versus stability as the end in and of itself. Yeah, yeah. And for Deng, the end is economic modernization, bringing China up to a level on par with the rest of the world. Now, though, as you're saying, stability is the end rather than economic modernization is the end. And economic growth supports stability rather than the other way around. Can we just linger for a moment on that late 80s, early 1990s? Obviously, the great goal for any you know reformer system is sort of reform without losers. But what China was finding certainly after 1989 and the protests there, many of which were sparked by price inflation, economic insecurity, was that we were having reform with losers. And so we needed to buttress, if we were going to save the reform agenda, we needed to layer in some social protections to essentially lessen the political cost and economic cost of reform. Can you talk a little bit about in the 1990s, what were some of the discussions and drivers of this? Was this simply a response to Tiananmen Square? And maybe we could dig a little bit into Deepao now. Was this simply a response to Tiananmen Square or was something else going on here? So in response, I think Tiananmen Square don't really realize affirmed his support for economic reform. If you look at the documents from the third plenum of the 14th Central Committee in 1993, when they adopted decisions on establishing famed, a social, yeah, right. yeah, socialist socialist market, market economy, economy. system, right. this document actually says China needs to create this multi-layer social security system to provide urban and rural residents with a degree of security commensurate with China's reality to promote economic development and social stability. And as part of this, Around this time is when China started experimenting with Dibao. So in 1993, the same year, Shanghai piloted the Dibao program, which is the- and Can you explain just, can you translate the full name of Dibao for non-Chinese speakers? Yeah, so Dibao is Chinese, is short for which is the minimum livelihood guarantee. And the program is exactly that. It's a non-conditional cash transfer that goes to people whose incomes, per capita household income is below a certain 
locally set level. And what does non-conditional mean in this context? It means that, well, in theory, that recipients don't need to do anything in order to get the cash. The contrast is the other cash transfer programs like Bolsa Familia in Brazil, which is conditional on you only get the cash if you do certain things. Here, you're just supposed to get the cash if your income is at a very, very low level. So local governments began experimenting with this type of social welfare, social assistance program in the early 1990s, and it was rolled out across China by 1999. When you say rolled out, is this a funded mandate that Beijing is essentially giving cash to local level governments to be able to implement this, or is this unfunded? It was unfunded. It was required, but at that time, it was unfunded. Local governments were supposed to fund it. That's changed somewhat over time, but initially, local governments were responsible fiscally. Okay, so by the 1990s, we have this DBAO program coming out. So as you say, this is an unconditional mandate. So I'm assuming that everyone below a certain income threshold is getting this program evenly and without any sort of subjective decisions being made by local level officials, correct? Right. <laughs> yeah, unfunded man- mandates. There are a lot of unfunded mandates at um, the local level. And what we see in the late 1990s through the 2000s is kind of the central level really trying to push local levels to more scientifically assess need and local levels being very, kind of if you look at the uptake and trajectory, local levels are clearly resisting kind of fully funding the mandate. And so how are they starting to make decisions about who and who will not get this if it's unaffordable? So I know we're going to talk in a bit about how other considerations were beginning to creep in or seep in, I should say, into how the policy is being implemented, or at least who's benefiting from it. In the early 2000s, we've got this unfunded mandate. So not everyone can get it. Local governments can't simply give it to everyone who falls below that income threshold. So how are they making these decisions in the face of resource constraints? Yeah, so I'm mostly looking at urban deball, and urban deball was rolled out before rural deball. And there you know, local administrators will look at a lot more than just purely household per capita income. They would try to look at what assets the household had access to and the potential for people in that household to participate in the labor market. So they looked at the potential of any individual to earn income rather than the actual income. And so if someone looked like they were able-bodied, that they could find a second job, a third job, then they were told you know, you should just work and not be on DBAL and receive these benefits. Now, something begins to shift or seep into the implementation of DBAL. And I wonder if you could talk about that. And that really forms the core argument of your book. But I wonder if you can explain this using the anecdote that you open up the book with, because I think that captures nicely in a human level how this discrepancy was emerging in terms of how DBAL was being handed out. Yeah, so I did my field work throughout 2011, 2012, 2013. I met a lot of households some of whom were on DBAL, others who had been denied benefits. And as I kind of the, the the story that I lay out at the beginning of the book, and all the names I should say are pseudonyms to protect identities, is based on these two families who were living in the same city, living in the same kind of district within the same city. Their economic situations looked very, very similar. They're extremely poor, dependent on part-time income, very vulnerable to economic shocks. One family was told just to apply for other jobs, to borrow from relatives, to sell your television and other assets that 
they were turned away from the DVOP program. They were actually not even allowed to apply by their local administrator who said, there's no way your application will work. You know, there's limited funds for DVOP. You can't get it. And so that story I heard a lot when I was doing my field work in China. But what was surprising to me was that a different household with the same economic circumstances, they had a very different story about getting DVOP. They said the neighborhood administrators actually proactively helped them do all the paperwork and get the benefit. So that to me was the puzzle that motivated my project. Two families facing the same economic situation, one family turned away, the other family proactively assisted in getting this benefit. What explains that difference? Yeah, maybe we can now just dive right into that. What explains that difference? And I wonder if you can do that through also explaining this idea you develop of seepage. You connect now, we've got stability maintenance or the CCP's attempt to sort of protect and preserve or perpetuate political order. You have what seem to be totally independent policies that it's developing to address other unrelated issues. And yet your argument is these two have come together in China through this process of seepage. So could you dig now pretty deeply into what explains that difference between how these two individuals were treated? Yeah. So the household that got Debo, they got it because the head of the household was recently released from prison. And as a result of that, he belongs to what is called a targeted population, Zhongdianrenkou. So this is the official designation that the Chinese Communist Party has for people they see as potential threats to the regime. And these are people who are under intensive surveillance so that they can be preemptively prevented from committing future crimes, which include things like protesting. And because this particular household was part of this designation and they were poor, the local administrators worked very hard to bring every resource that the state had to this family. And so this is a situation where, as we talked about before, local levels face budget constraints when it comes to DBAL. They've been trying to turn away a lot of people from the DBAL program, at least those who appear able-bodied. So that's what I say is one logic of distributing benefits for DBAL. But another logic, which is what I call the seepage of China's fixation on stability into the DBAL program, is that anyone who is under surveillance or a part of this targeted population, if they are eligible for DBAL, then they're proactively given the benefit. And so when this is combined with the budget constraint, the allocation of resources becomes shifted. What by targeting or channeling DBAO funds and resources towards these targeted population, what is the assumption on behalf of local level officials that they're paying off someone to bind them closer to the regime? Is it that putting them into the formal DBAO process provides access to information they wouldn't ordinarily have. What's the logic there? So one thing that I want to be really clear on is that I don't think at most points, local officials sat down and said, hey, we have this benefit. We can use it strategically to co-opt people. I really don't think that's what happened. I think the Chinese regime as a whole is so designed around a focus on stability that when stability comes into play, kind of all resources are mobilized in support of that goal. And so for, for what happens with DBAO is that if you look at DBAO policies, really the only logic is about kind of incomes and labor. 
But when you look at policy documents from the public security system, then this is where you see clearly spelled out policies that say if there's a targeted population and they're eligible for social benefits, then all social benefits should be provided to these populations. The logic there is this idea underlying what China calls comprehensive management of public security, which is that for purposes of public security and stability, all resources available to the regime should be leveraged to support that goal. What are the effects of this stability above all priority that the CCP has? You're showing in the example of Dibao how this is an alternative resource channeling than you would have in the sort of pure Dibao context. If you were just looking at alleviating poverty or at least channeling resources towards the most needed, you would have probably a different set of recipients than if you're bringing in the targeted. Can you extrapolate a little bit on what are the practical effects of this? And I think especially in the context of you have China, which is a nominally socialist country, which orients at least its value proposition to the Chinese people. Still today, sure, there's some sort of wealth and power that some of the nationalists like, but in terms of a lot of residents, the, the narrative is still on socialist legacies and protection of workers, protection of rural workers. So is it that they are discounting or they are willing to take a trade-off, so to speak, between not fulfilling that promise because they're shifting resources to stability? Does that just tell you where their priorities lie? And what are the practical effects of, as you mentioned in the book, you've got those deserving of the debau who are looking and seeing that others are getting it and not them, that certainly must have an impact on how they're looking at the credibility of the government, the fairness of the government. So what is the trade-off that Beijing is willing to accept for this seepage? Yeah, so what I find is that when Dibao is redirected in this way, it leads to discontent and small-scale protests within neighborhoods. And if we jump up a level to compare different regions that use kind of these types of policies more than others, in those regions that use Dibao for these repressive purposes more, levels of government legitimacy are lower, as is perceptions of government competence, including government's competence in managing stability. So there is this discontent, including small scale, smaller scale protests. I think the question is, to your point earlier, this is the Chinese government reneging on a policy promise. And on a broader level, it's clearly showing that the regime is prioritizing power or its stability and its ability to control um, Chinese society over any ideological promises around socialism. Bringing the sort of seepage argument just one step further, I wonder if you can talk about what are the wider implications of your work for how you understand now China's policy and political system? Does the work on seepage, do you see other areas where this is also in effect, where something completely different is now being brought in by the tractor beam of political stability? Yeah, so I focus just on this one social assistance program, but looking at others' work on stability maintenance, we see anecdotal examples of lots of different programs being used for stability, whether it's money that's supposed to be set aside for education, for environmental protection, if it can be used for suppressing dissent and collective action and mobilization, then that happens. I'm assuming this is also not unique to China. I'm assuming that we would see similar process anywhere where you're allocating resources or you're allowing some level of, of political subjectivity or, or regime subjectivity and how resources are allocated, that they may stray away from their originally intended purpose and towards some other, whether that's regime stability or some other priority. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. And for me, this concept of seepage is this idea of gradual institutional change 
where the goals and resources in one policy is changed because of another government priority, even if it's not done so in a strategic or directed way. And I do think that this phenomenon probably happens in other political systems and other domains. Finally, I wanted to turn to sort of flip to the back of the book now and turn to your final chapter, which was a really interesting discussion, not only of areas of future research, but also a short discussion of We tend to think that one of the great attributes this emerging surveillance state in China has is the access to what seems like an unlimited amount of data. This is both because of just the sheer population size, but also what we would call sort of very online. The Chinese population is penetration of cell phones, penetration of the internet, and then also obviously a proliferation of apps like Weixin and whatnot. You push back slightly in this idea, or at least you clarify that there's a difference between quantity and data of quali- and quality of data. In particular, I wanted to ask you if you could unpack a little bit, what are some of the limitations that the Chinese regime has when using some of this data, especially when we move into the predictive world of trying to root out or at least have some visibility into where tomorrow's instability will be? Yeah, so I think one point that I make is when we think about surveillance in the age of big data and AI, we think that it's somehow changing the nature of surveillance from reactive to predictive. But one thing that China shows us is that China since 1950 has been trying to engage in predictive surveillance. What it's doing with the targeted population program, like analogy for it is whether you know the book or the movie Minority Report is what's happening there is that they're trying to identify people who will commit what the regime considers to be crimes before it actually happens. That's incredibly difficult to do. And even when a country like China is collecting way more information about its population than it ever has in the past, and probably more than other governments are, that prediction will be based on training data, which can be very much flawed. And I think one thing that most people don't talk very much about when talking about AI or just machine learning in general is that these systems, they're probabilistic. They're not deterministic. So there's some probability that a prediction or a classification is going to be right or wrong. And there's almost always in these systems a trade-off between precision and recall. So between false negatives and false positives. And usually you try to balance the two, but If you really want one versus the other, then you have to give up something. And what I've seen in China in my research is that local governments want to avoid mistakes at all costs. And they're willing to pick up false positives in order to not make any mistakes. A false positive being the prediction algorithm or detection algorithm says there is anonymous crowd activity, so there may be a problem. You send the cops there and there's nothing there. But the logic being it's just for an official, you'd rather have a false positive. There's nothing there that you thought was there than a false negative, which is you didn't think something was there. And then you've got a protest on your hand and you've got to answer for how that occurred on your watch, correct? That's right. That's right. And whether that's an event or a person. So we think this person can might be someone who organizes a protest in the future. We're willing to identify a lot of incorrect people who never had any intention of doing anything rather than letting one person who does organize something slip off the radar. And you say that the zenith of this is probably what's what's occurring in Xinjiang, where you write the CCP is willing to trade low level of precision in order to maximize recall, right? So they're willing to take a large number of individuals who are false positives across an entire region 
rather than, so that low-level precision doesn't bother them as much as the proliferation of false negatives. I should just be clear that I didn't do any field work in Xinjiang. My data doesn't come from Xinjiang, but just from what I've read about what's happening in Xinjiang and the large numbers of people who are interred, that it seems very much like, you know, we're willing to imprison a lot of people who have done nothing so that the few who might be threatening are also interred. And that's a trade-off that the Chinese regime, at least in my field work, makes again and again. I wanted to ask you just finally, what are your next research plans? Are you continuing on this path or do you have new projects that you're working on? I'm definitely exploring some projects around this idea of stability, but primarily around why people in China really also, to a large extent, accept this idea of stability or the importance of stability and truly really, really trying to get a sense of you know what do they think of when they think of stability what is the fear and why do they think that way and i think more generally a lot of my newer work is looking at how the regime is or is not able to shape the beliefs and knowledge and behaviors of the public. Whereas my prior work has been looking more at what are the strategies that the regime has adopted. So that's what I'm working on. Great. Well, Jen, thank you very much and uh, look forward to reading uh, your future work. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog. 